Uh, there are Bibles in the foyer if uh, you would like one, though the passages will be coming up on the screen and there is an outline of the talk in the bulletin. Let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our true and living God, uh, we pray in your mercy uh, that in the midst of our busy lives you would make it possible for us to hear you speak in your word. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us to understand this word and know it is yours so we would know it's good work in our lives. We would be helped to trust Jesus and we, through your word's teaching, rebuke, correction and training, would be equipped to live for him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, four truths to live by, and not just for you to live by. Four truths you must teach your children. Four truths that you need to make sure your neighbours know. Now, of course, that's a, a pretty bold claim, especially as each of these truths is contested. But that is actually what Hebrews 9, 27 to 28 presents so clearly. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Two truths about you and two truths about Jesus. Truths that will not only help you live wisely in the present, but will, if believed and acted on, bring you to live forever. So the first truth, you have one life and only one life. People are destined to die once, and we die once as each of us has only one life. And at one level, this is a fairly sober reminder of the end that awaits us all. And there is, says God's word, no hope in thinking that you'll cycle round for more of the same. God's word specifically denies that there's reincarnation, that you'll have a cycle of death and rebirth as you wait to escape by your own efforts this world of striving and suffering. There is no second chance beyond this life. But this sober reminder of death also brings home how unique this extraordinary thing called a human life is. What a precious gift that you have been given just this once. You have only one life on this earth and so you should live as if you have only one life, honouring the gift by living well, living a life marked by thankfulness and wonder, by truth and love, by moral courage and kindness. And your children should know they have only one life, not a life to be squandered in idleness and self-indulgence or hazarded for thrills or wasted in addictions, but one life, a wonderful gift to be lived well. For it will end. It is fleeting. After death, and this is the second truth, comes the judgment. The next thing for you after death is judgment, presenting yourself at God's judgment seat to receive in eternity according to what you have done in this life. This is the clear and repeated teaching of Scripture. So, Ecclesiastics, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or ill. 
It is witnessed in Israel's history and it is clearly taught by our Lord Jesus, as you heard in Matthew 25. When he comes, all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll judge, he'll separate them as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. That judgment is at the last day, the end, but for each of us it is the next thing after death. There's no opportunity to change, no opportunity for repentance after you die. Judgment is clearly taught and yet it is vigorously denied by many in our society. In fact, over the last 200 years, consciousness of judgment, of accountability, has actually been deliberately undermined in the West. So, for example, if you want to promote revolution, and many did, you need to erode a consciousness of accountability to God so that you can get people to do whatever you want them to do to further the revolutionary cause. People who believe that they'll meet the God who said, you shall not kill, are much more reluctant to throw the bomb or to destabilise the existing state by violence than those who believe only in this worldly rewards and punishments. Or if you are committed, as many are today, to furthering your own autonomy, to having the right to determine how you live with reference only to yourself and what you want and to insist that everyone else should respect your choices, well, you want us all to believe that we're only accountable to ourselves for our choices. But judgment by a just God actually means that we are accountable outside ourselves and that there are objective standards of right and wrong that all should live by. Judgment denies the claim that the creature is its own lawgiver and judge. And so there's a reason why the reality that we will all have to give account to God has been denied, why your consciousness of judgment perhaps has been eroded. Yet accountability to our Creator is necessary for us and it is good. It actually says the life you live, the decisions you make, even though they're a billions of people, the way you treat others matters. Matters to a just and righteous God who's not overwhelmed by numbers. See, think, if you were given a job and no one ever checked how you did it or whether you did it at all, you'd start to think it doesn't really matter. But if your performance is monitored, you know, you know that what you do matters. Well, judgment tells you that your life is not just a chance blip, here for a moment and forgotten for eternity. It says how you live now matters, matters, because it has eternal consequences. <coughs> and it says that in the end, there will be a difference in eternal outcomes based on how you live, on what you have done. And so the Hitlers and the Maos and the Stalins, they won't escape justice. The injustices done to you will also be addressed. But judgment's not just a practical certainty, a practical necessity. It's also a certainty. In giving proof by his resurrection, by his raising of Jesus, that Jesus is the judge, God has also given proof of the reality and certainty of judgment. God has set a day, says Paul, when he will judge the world with justice by man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so if you want to be sure 
that you will not face God in judgment. If you want to be sure that you can live just how you wish, accountable only to yourself, you really have to be sure that God has not raised Jesus from the dead. And that takes more than thinking, oh, the dead don't rise, because trustworthy people said they saw him alive after he was crucified and risen from the dead. And you can't dismiss a report of something happening just by not wanting to believe it happened or saying it has never happened and so can't happen. I mean, if you think that just because something has never happened and so can't happen, well, you would have dismissed reports of people walking on the moon or of a baby being conceived in a test tube. Jesus has risen. Having to give an account of your life to the just judge Jesus is certain. And yet it's a truth so many of us want to deny, long to deny. And that's because if we're honest, we're aware that we will all fall short in that judgment. We're aware that standing before the God who sees all, who hears all, who knows the secrets of our hearts, who gives to everyone what they deserve for what they've done, Standing before him, we will be left without a defence. Without a defence for our rebellion against God, that is, for our sin. You know sin? Our sin, where we've known what we ought to have done and not done it. Well, we've known that we should have listened to our parents or been faithful to our husband or wife or stopped to help and not done it. Where we've known that we should have turned off that computer before we clicked on the porn or the gambling site, where we've known we should have paid our tax or kept our word and not done it. We'll be without a defence. For where we've known what we ought to have done and not done it, and we'll be without defence. For our sin, where we've known what we shouldn't have done and still done it, gossiped, despised, envied another and coveted their possessions or relationships, lusted after another, whether in person or in the virtual world, closed our heart to another's need, failed to give God thanks. We sin and so we fear judgment. We'd rather not believe it's there, but Jesus has made it certain. Two truths about us. We have only one life and it finishes in death and after death comes judgment. Both true, but not in themselves good news, sobering, but not a cause of joy. But there are two truths here about Jesus that are a cause of joy for all who will trust him, that are good news. Good news. Firstly, the truth that Jesus takes away sin, deals with our sin by his death. Verse 28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. Christ was sacrificed. Notice that it's in the passive. Jesus died in obedience to the Father. It was God the Father's will that Jesus, his precious and beloved Son, become our Saviour through suffering. The Father's will that he died on the cross for rebels for sinners, for the users, the thankless, the despisers of God. The Father gives the Son. Now, I don't know how you've been taught to think about God. Forbidding, threatening, just angry, always angry. Sometimes preachers can contribute to that, can't they? Myself included. 
Because God is angry at our sin. I said it because it's true. And it's all right, of course, that he should be angry about what defiles and destroys his creation. But it's not the whole story, is it? Not even the main part of the story. At the heart of the gospel is that God loves. He gives his son for sinners. That's how God demonstrates, says St Paul, his love for us. While we were sinners, rebels, Christ died for us. God gave his son as a sacrifice, it says, to take away the sins of many. To take away the sins of many is actually a quote. It's a quote from the Greek version of Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. You may or may not remember that Old Testament passage. It's worth looking up because it speaks of Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus, given in sacrifice, dies as a substitute. The one who bears in himself what our sin, our rebellion against God deserves so that our sins are no longer there to be an issue between us and God. In fact, the author has spoken a lot about the effect of Jesus' death already in this chapter, hasn't he? Back in verse 14, speaking of the effects of Jesus' shed blood, he said it cleanses us, our consciences, our inner person, really and entirely. That's saying that there's nothing in us now that is unfit for the presence of God because of Jesus' cleansing. Oh, and he says in verse 15 that his death redeems us, that there's no debt now outstanding to God's law, that what we owe because of our disobedience is being paid by Jesus' death so that we are freed from the law's condemnation forever. Oh, and in verse 15 he makes it clear that Jesus' death brings into being, inaugurates that new covenant that he's spoken about in chapter 8, that new covenant where God forgives our sins, where he remembers them no more, where they will never again arise in our relationship with God. Cleansed, freed, forgiven forever. Our authors piled image upon image to show us how effective Jesus' death is to deal with our sin and to show us that Jesus in his death has dealt with our sin fully and finally, as he said in verse 26, Jesus, making a sacrifice of himself, has done away with sin. And the sense is that his death has cancelled sin, nullified its power to separate us from God and enslave us to death. But you might have noticed in these last few verses of chapter 9 that there's actually an emphasis on this little word, once. Starts off verse 25, where he says, Unlike the high priest of the old covenant of Judaism, Jesus offers just one sacrifice, himself given in death once. He has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin, he says, by the sacrifice of himself. Humans can only die once, so Jesus only dies once once. And he doesn't need to offer more than one sacrifice because his death is effective in dealing with sin. He has obtained what our author called in verse 12 an eternal redemption. 
eternal because it has fully dealt with the offence of our sin now and forever. And so our freedom from death and judgment will never be reversed forever. Jesus' death fully and finally dealt with sin once and for all. In fact, our author adds comments on two other features of Jesus' work to reinforce that it is once and for all. Firstly, the location of his current priestly presence. Verse 24, it says, again contrasting with the high priest, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear in God's presence for us. Unlike the high priest of the old covenant, Jesus ministers in the very presence of God there for us. His presence ensures that our presence will never defile heaven. It's not that heaven, the abode of God, needs to be cleansed. Now, our author's using the old covenant day of atonement ritual that through cleansing by the blood of the sacrifice allowed the sign and shadow of God's presence, the tabernacle, to continue in Israel that allowed for the holy to abide in the presence of sinners. He's using that ritual to tell us that Jesus has fitted us by his death to come into the very presence of God and remain there forever. In fact, in chapter 6, we learnt that his presence guarantees our presence there, the presence of believers, because Jesus is our forerunner, the one who goes ahead, whom we follow. Jesus' death is always effective for us because his presence in the Father's presence always holds before the Father his sacrifice on the cross. It is the foundation of our forever forgiveness. And his presence in heaven means that he can save 725 completely, save for all time, because he always intercedes for us by his presence in God's presence. And if you are saved completely and forever, there is no more salvation to be achieved. To be fit to come into the presence of God is actually the fullness of salvation now and forever. Nothing more needs to be done or can be done beyond what Christ has already done because he has brought us into the Father's presence safe and at peace with him. Oh, and secondly, our author notes that Christ has been sacrificed once and for all at what he calls the culmination of the ages, verse 26. The culmination of the ages. Now that doesn't just mean that Christ's death and rising is the climax of God's plan in this age. It is, but it's saying more. It's also a way of speaking of Christ bringing in the new age. In a sense, the end of this present evil age and the beginning of what the Old Testament speaks of as the age to come, overlap in Jesus. They overlap because Jesus, by his death and resurrection, guarantee that new age, brings it, in a sense, into the present. The way the effect of Christ's death is talked about is bringing cleansing, redemption, forgiveness. The location of Jesus' priestly ministry, the timing of his ministry, are all there to tell us that Jesus has saved his people, those who trust him, fully 
and finally. And because his death is an effective sacrifice that saves for all time, it is once and for all. And we need to think about this once and for all business. Think about it. So firstly, we praise and trust Jesus as he deserves. A, a, a trust that is expressed in, as we'll see, eagerly awaiting his return. You see, because Jesus' work is effective, it's once and for all, there is nothing we need or can do to add to it. Because Jesus' work is effective, because it's once and for all, there's no need for any other sacrifice. There's no need for any repetition of Christ's sacrifice. There's no need for any re-offering of Jesus' sacrifice. And because Jesus is in the presence of the Father, there is no need for any reminding of God of Jesus' sacrifice. Grasping the truth that Jesus has done for you once and for all, everything that needs to be done to deal with your sin is a source of freedom and confidence and joy. But you know, there are some ways of thinking and talking about Jesus' death and Christian ministry that can actually undermine that and so re-enslave believers again to religious works and to rob us of assurance. And I'm actually thinking about Catholic doctrine, about the sacrifice of the Mass. This is taken from the Catholic Catechism. Let me read it to you and then we'll think about it. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The Eucharist is their version of the Lord's Supper or the Mass. The victim is one and the same, the same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross, only the manner of offering is different. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. Or as they go on later, as a sacrifice, the Eucharist is also offered in reparation for the sins of the living and the dead and to obtain spiritual or temporal benefits from God. Now this is the current catechism of the Catholic Church. And on their understanding, the Lord's Supper, the remembrance of his death, becomes a sacrifice. It's not something we receive with faith, but something we offer. It's something we offer to God and to which our sacrifice of praise and thanks is then joined. And this sacrifice, they teach, is effective to help us grow in grace grow in the charity that perfects our faith and so justifies us. This sacrifice, I say, is effective to forgive sin. And the minister really is a priest, somebody who makes sacrifices. That's actually at the heart of his ministry and the basis of his special status, offering again in the person of Christ the sacrifice of Christ made on the cross. Now there's a lot more in the Catechism, whether it's speaking of transubstantiation by which Christ is really locally present in the bread and the wine, and then what follows that, because I mean if Jesus is in the bread, we should worship Jesus, and they worship the bread. Oh, and there's the sacrificial character of the priest acting in what they say, the person of Christ in the Eucharist, which is the basis of the priest's special status. There's lots more in the Catechism. But what is the effect of this teaching, especially this notion that in the Mass we offer 
Christ. Well, it actually diminishes Jesus and the sacrifice he offered once and for all on the cross. Jesus commanded no repetition, but that we receive with thankfulness through believing the gospel preached in the supper what he has done once and for all in his death that we remember in the supper. To suggest we need to add our sacrifices to his to deal with sin is to suggest that his sacrifice made once and for all on Calvary was not enough. To suggest it needs to be re-offered is to deny the effectiveness of his presence in the Father's presence. And this reintroduction of a priestly ministry makes the believer dependent on the ministry of the church, the sacrifices the church makes for salvation and relationship with God. It puts the church, the institution, between you, the believer, and your saviour. And of course, to maintain the claim that they're making a worthy sacrifice, the Catechism insists that you should believe the fiction of transubstantiation and it exposes you to idolatry. The idolatry of giving a created thing, a piece of bread, worship that is due only to God, which is why people genuflect when they go into a Catholic church because the reserved host is in the tabernacle under the red light at the end. It's what it's about. Further, of course, this teaching distorts Christian ministry and inflates the role of the minister. See, Christian ministry, according to St Paul in Timothy, is attending to the reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. It's about being urgent and insistent in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And genuine Christian ministry focused on the word of God makes the believer dependent not on the minister, but on Jesus by directing believers to the promises of God, the word of God, the word of our Saviour Jesus and to the gift of the Spirit of God given to all. Now ministers, hopefully, are gifted in teaching but we all have gifts. So ministers, yes, they might be differently gifted and of course they should be an example in faith and conduct. But ministers have no special character that is not shared by all believers. And of course this teaching in the end robs the believer of confidence. The very confidence Jesus died to give his followers by making you rely on your religious works, your participation in the sacraments of the church to be right with God, to have your sins dealt with. This teaching robs of confidence and reintroduces fear because it turns you back on yourself to be right with God. Jesus sacrifices once and for all because it is effective. He has redeemed us by his death on the cross forever and we can only receive what he has done, received through believing the gospel. There is and can be no reoffering. For he's in heaven now, seated at the right hand of the Father, guaranteeing by his presence there that we can come into the presence of the Father. Now we need to remember this uh, like me, you may be grateful for the service of many Catholic organisations. My parents died in a Catholic uh, nursing home. We're very grateful for the treatment. And, and, and like, you, like me, you might feel, in a sense, a common cause against the inroads of the secular in our society with the Catholics. 
But this teaching is wrong and it matters because it diminishes Jesus. It diminishes Jesus and his work on the cross. It diminishes his achievement and it robs the believer of that confident trust which is the source of genuine obedience, the genuine Christian life. Well, because we know Jesus has done all that needs to be done once and for all on the cross to bring us into the presence of the Father, and because we know he has achieved by his death an eternal redemption, because we know he has brought into effect by his death the new covenant where our sins are forever forgiven, believers are confident, and we show that confidence by looking forward to his return in glory. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him eagerly. And that's the sense of the word, eagerly waiting for him. Now at this point the author having spoken of judgment you might have expected him to speak of Jesus returning a second time to judge the earth, which of course is true. But he doesn't say that, does he? He's writing to believers, to encourage believers to help them persevere in trusting Jesus and so reminds them of the certainty of the salvation Jesus will bring. This return, he says, is not to bear sin or deal with sin. Our author, as he's told us, knows Jesus has done that once and for all on the cross and so even now he continues to reinforce the finality of Christ's work in history on that first Easter. He's taken away the sins of many of believers. He's done away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So now, he says, he appears not to deal with sin, but to bring salvation to those eagerly waiting for him. And salvation here is big salvation. It's the fulfilment of all God's promises. It's the new heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem. It's that day when God's people will live in God's presence, when in the words of Revelation they will see his face. It's the time when death and tears and pain are no more, when God's people will never again be troubled by sin or the hostility of those who oppose them for Jesus' sake in this life. Now, you can read about this salvation, this big salvation in Revelation 21 and 22, which brings together so much of what the Old Testament has promised at that time. But that's the salvation that Jesus brings to his people when he returns. And they can be sure of it because Jesus has died for them. His people are those trusting him, relying on him in his death and now eagerly waiting for him. And that eagerness should belong to all who believe in Jesus, to you if you believe in Jesus, because he has died for your sins and risen again and he's gone into God's presence on your behalf. And that eager waiting itself is a testimony to the effectiveness and finality of what Jesus has done, isn't it? I mean, think of that day. Think of Jesus' glory on that day. This is the Jesus, remember, who knocked Paul off his donkey, who left John when he appeared to him. John, his beloved disciple, as dead. Think of his glory on that day. He will come with his father's angels and heaven and earth will flee from his presence and he is coming to judge. 
And then think of yourself, your life. I mean, I'm sure you haven't lived a perfect life either before or after you believed in Jesus. But believers eagerly wait. Why? Well, they know Jesus has fully and finally dealt with the offence of their sin in God's sight. They are cleansed. They know they can relate now to God on the basis of the new covenant, to God who in that covenant who has promised to forgive them, to remember their sins no more, promised never to act in judgment on their sin. They depend on what Jesus, their high priest, has done in the sacrifice of himself and his eternal intercession on their behalf in the presence of God for us. So they're confident. But hang on, you say, what did we hear in Matthew 25? Doesn't that talk of Jesus separating the sheep from the goats on the basis of their behaviour, on what they've done? Well, that's true, it does, isn't it? It talks about separating the sheep and the goats on, on the basis of, well, some fed and clothed and visited and, and some didn't. It's true. It's true because faith in Jesus real trust in Jesus, will always show in how we live. And it will always show in love of Jesus' people, his brothers and sisters. It will always show in their service. Oh, and it will especially show in love of gospel preachers who suffer hardship to spread the gospel. It's true. Faith will always show. But look at the sheep's surprise. When did we, they say? They had no confidence in their own works. Their lives have been unselfconsciously transformed by their trust in and love of Jesus. A transformation itself, the fruit of the new covenant, that determination of God to have a people in whose hearts is his law, who love him. They weren't ticking off, keeping a record of what they'd done. They were surprised. Just as their love is for Jesus, the believer's confidence is in Jesus, not in what they've done, though they will do. Because of what Jesus has done, believers are confident, confident in their Saviour, confident in his promise of return, confident in him to fit them for that day. So here in these few verses we have four truths to live by and to die by. You have one life. You are accountable to God for how you live that life. Jesus takes away sin and he'll take away your sin if you trust him and Jesus will return. And you can look forward to that day if you have turned back to God and put your trust in the crucified Jesus, the Jesus we meet in the Gospels, the Jesus whom God sent into the world to save sinners by his death, his sacrifice on the cross. So four truths, very clear. Have you embraced them? Do you live by them? Let's say, you say, no, I don't. Well, which of these truths aren't you convinced of? That you'll die once? that you'll face judgment, that Jesus is alive and will return to bring salvation to his people, or maybe that there could be a God who loves you despite what you know about yourself. 
A God who loves you enough to deal with the deadly effect of your rebellion against him by the death of his son. We have only one life. And so your time of opportunity, your time to work out whether Jesus can bring that big salvation and give you a share in it is now. So if you're not convinced about any of those truths, come and talk. Test the arguments. Find out more about Jesus. Find out why so many are convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead. You see, this is about eternal life or eternal punishment. It is too important to ignore and hope it will all work out or to live with uncertainty and unease and it is too good to pass by. For here you can meet a God who wants you to come back to himself despite your shunning him and who would expend himself to make that possible. So if you doubt any of these truths, come and talk. But maybe you're sitting here and hearing this and you know you've no questions, you actually accept these truths. Well then if you have never done so, now is actually the time to commit, to ask the living Lord Jesus to forgive you, to cleanse you, to include you in his new covenant people. And asking Jesus is what's called prayer. It's actually addressing Jesus, he lives, saying Lord Jesus and then saying what's on your heart because he's given you conviction Please forgive me and make me one of your people. If that's you, you ought to do that in your heart, whether it's now or later or at home, and let someone know. But let's say you're sitting here and you know you're already a believer in Jesus. You're committed to these four truths. You know you have one life. You know you're accountable to God. You know that Jesus takes away sin and you know Jesus will return. Well, ask yourself, am I? trusting Jesus, living ready to meet Jesus? Am I eagerly looking forward to his return? Am I ready by living the life our Lord Jesus commanded, that life of love and doing good, the life we meet to encourage in each other? Am I ready by loving others enough to want them to know the truth about themselves and the Lord Jesus? Am I ready by holding fast to the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ has done all that needs to be done in his death to bring you a sinner to live in the presence of the Holy God and that he has done it once and for all, that nothing needs to be and nothing can be added to what he has done in his death for your sins on the cross. That death brings you into the new covenant where your sins are forgiven forever. Are you ready by holding fast to that truth and so being determined that you would not dishonour Jesus and rob yourself and others of your confidence in him by reintroducing into our life the language of sacrificing priests or by suggesting that in our worship we make an offering to God for our sins? Are you ready by being determined that you will not substitute false religious works, the worship of our own imaginations, for the response Christ calls for from his people in his word, trust in him that shows itself in love and doing good? Are you ready by being determined, not even in your own heart, to think that you must add by your own doing? to what Jesus has done once and for all on the cross to make you secure with God? Are you ready by being determined to rely for your peace, 
confidence and hope only on Jesus, only on his blood shed on the cross and his present intercession in the presence of the Father, ready by relying on Jesus, your high priest, because he can save you to the uttermost, completely and for all time. Are you ready by being determined to always give thanks, whatever happens to you in life, for such a complete saviour, and to rejoice always in being his, brought into the Father's presence by his shed blood. We are all destined to die once and after our deaths to face judgment. But Christ has been sacrificed by our kind and gracious God once to take away the sins of many, of all who will repent and believe the gospel, to take away your sin if you believe the gospel. And the Lord Jesus Christ will appear a second time, not to bear sin, because he has done that once for all on the cross. No, he will appear to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him. You have heard the truth. Make sure you are amongst them. Let's pray. Our true and living God, help these truths that we have only one life, that we will give account, that Jesus has died for our sins and that he will return. Help these truths not to be plucked away from our heart in the busyness of our lives, but help them to take root and bear fruit, the fruit of a confident trust in Jesus that shows itself in living that life of love and good works that will be evident to all and evident on the last day. Please nurture in us such an understanding of what Jesus has done once and for all on the cross that we trust him, trust him completely and never seek to diminish what he's done for us by adding our own works to his. Give us the peace and joy of knowing that Jesus has saved us completely, saved us to the uttermost, saved us for all time by his death. We ask this in his name. Amen.